Good morning, Renewal. Let's try it again. Good morning, Renewal. I'm excited this morning. I don't know about you, but I'm excited to be here. God has been good to us. We are three years into this thing. Amen? Three years. That's something big. I don't know if you know, but most churches don't make it to three years, and they don't make it to the size that we are now. So God is doing something amazing in our midst, in one of the hardest places to plant a church, Chicago, Illinois. God is moving, and he's doing some great things. He's doing awesome things. If you're new with us, I just want to say welcome to you. My name is Derek Puckett. I'm the lead pastor here at Renewal Church of Chicago, and I want to say thank you, thank you, thank you for joining in on us with us this morning. As Pastor Luke said earlier, fill out one of those forms. I'd love to get to know you, get you plugged into our church a little bit. If you've been coming for a while, we'd love to get you to fill out that too and see where you might want to serve and get you into our church and, and see how everything works and moves in our church. But thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us here on this Sunday morning, this special Sunday morning. I'm excited to be here with you, and I'm excited for God, what God is doing here in our church. Without further ado, I want to get to our speaker today, y'all. This man, I'm super excited about him bringing the word this morning. His name is Aaron Brockett. He is a pastor of Traders Point Christian Church in Indianapolis, and I love this brother. He's been a dear brother to me uh, since day one. He has four kids. He's married to Lindsay, and they've been at Traders Point for about 10 years now, and I think I came maybe a year Eight, uh, or eight years ago, we've been kicking it ever since. Um, quick story, we were going through just a, a period of time where we needed more. We wanted more out of church and felt, had a, little diff- a lot of different problems. And I remember sitting there early on in him being at the church and sitting in the, in the balcony. Nobody was really in the balcony at that time. Now there are people in the balcony, but we were there and I'm listening to him, him and preach. And I just, my wife and I broke down in tears and said, that's exactly what we need in the church. We need a church that's doing, that's discipling individuals, sending people out. So I went up to him after service, about 1,500 people there or so. And I said, hey man, I love that you preach today. I, I gotta know more, I wanna be involved. And he's like, cool, let's do lunch next week. And I'm like, what? You wanna do lunch with me? This is the first time you met me. And, and that next time we met up, uh, he just, I don't know what it was, but the Lord was using him and working through him. And he just spoke directly to me. He said, man, you need to plant a church. And I said, okay, we'll we'll think about that. Black people don't plant churches. Mm -hmm. I know about planting churches. And uh, this brother, eight years ago, and even to this day, he stuck by my side. Um, To a few years ago when we started, he was the same guy that came up to me and said, hey man, 10 o'clock at night, hey, you still want to plant that church? And we're sitting on the couch praying, no joke, praying, Lord, what would you have us do? Buzz, the phone starts buzzing off, texting, and you still want to plant a church in Chicago? I said, yes, man, let's do this. Let's, let's think about it. Let's see what the Lord can do. A month later, we were accepted, and we came here two months later to plant this church in Chicago. I am so glad that this brother has been in my life. We don't look alike. You know, he's got his hair a little slick back, you know. I look better than him, though, but, you know. <laughs> I'm just playing. We, we do a little competitions. He's scared to do, uh, we do this pull-ups for pink slips. He won't do it with me, but uh, pink slips are your car, okay? <laughs> I'm, trying to, I'm trying to take his, but he won't do it with me. Without further ado, I'm excited to bring my brother up here. Would you give it up for Aaron Brock as he comes to the stage? Well, good morning. It's good to see you guys. Uh, happy anniversary to uh, you as a church. It was three years ago. Uh, my wife, Lindsay, and our four kids came to the grand opening. I think you guys were meeting, uh, what's that place called? The Kitchen? kitchen. The Kitchen of Chicago. So we uh, came to the grand opening, and to be able to see this is absolutely incredible. And as Derek said, uh, we have uh, been friends now for about eight years. I get the uh, opportunity to sit on what's called the management team of Renewal Church of Chicago, which is basically a group of individuals that keep your pastor accountable. Uh, We speak into his life, we encourage him, we pray for him. I just want you to know that he has that in his life. I also want you to know that he's the same guy off the stage that you see on. And uh, Derek is, uh, oftentimes we will uh, talk on the phone. Uh, He'll just call me up in the middle of the afternoon and say, hey man, do you have a minute? And usually turns into about an hour. because he likes to run his mouth a lot, as you've already seen. And, uh, um, but we'll just talk, and uh, he'll just actually share his heart uh, for you. When he speaks about this church, he's talking about individuals. And uh, it's absolutely great for me to be able to be here. I've, I've been able to visit, first time I've been able to preach, and uh, I just want you to know that uh, you have a great pastor, and um, you can trust him, you can believe in him. I hope you'll have his back. Um, the best part of him is his wife, Kaylee, and I think most of you know that. And so we can give Kaylee a hand. All right. 
But uh, as a church, I just want you to take care of him and his uh, family, and uh, our, as well as the whole staff. Man, Luke and Dan and Liz and Tony and everybody else that calls uh, this church home and everybody that volunteers to pull this off. Uh, I just want you to know that our church back in Indianapolis stands with you. There are hundreds and hundreds of people who know about this church, but they've not necessarily met you personally. And uh, they give financially to this church. We pray for this church. So it's uh, really great to be here with you. Uh, If you have a Bible or maybe you have a Bible on your phone, would you go ahead and uh, turn to Acts chapter 4? Uh, We're going to be in a couple of different passages today, but I want to start in the book of Acts primarily because the book of Acts, and some of you may know this, uh, is a church planting book. And I think that's highly appropriate given the fact that this is a new church plant. This is uh, three years old. And so I'm going to look at uh, what we see happening in the very first church. So what you have is when Jesus ascends into heaven after his death, his burial, and his resurrection, He gathers not only his disciples around him, but there's about 120 fear-filled followers. They're fearful because uh, they're not exactly sure what's next for them. And Jesus says, I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, which is the city where they lived, and then in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. So there's about 120 people that start off in the church. And some of you know this. In Acts chapter 2, they experience this thing called Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit kind of falls upon them. And get this, they grow from 120 to 3,000 overnight. Right now, talk about a logistical nightmare. Now, I realize that as a church, you are not about numbers for numbers' sake, and you shouldn't be, but numbers are not a bad thing because numbers represent lives. In fact, the Bible is not anti-numbers. There's a whole book of the Bible called Numbers. And if, and if it didn't matter, then Luke, who authored the book of Acts, wouldn't have told us. He would have just said, that, hey, there's a small group of people, and then they grew really big one day. No, he gives us specific numbers, and they grow from 120 to 3,000. It would have been a horrible for children's ministry check-in. Like overnight, they wouldn't have had enough volunteers, the facility wouldn't have been adequate, and then not to mention by Acts chapter 4, so between Acts 2 and Acts 4, they experience all these problems. Derek and I were talking about that this morning at breakfast. You know, with size and with growth just comes more problems and more issues. Why? Because I'm messy and you're messy and people are messy. Just turn to your neighbor and say, hey man, you're messy. You can do it right now. And some of you that are married, you're like, I've already told him. All right. uh, we're, we're, we're really messy people, and so the church is increasing in problems. By the time you get to Acts 4, they grow to 5,000. Now, here's the thing. They realize that what they are experiencing is way beyond anything that they could manage. They knew it. They felt it. Just think about that for a minute. What if uh, by December, like this church grew to 5,000? Would that change some things? Yeah, Probably. You probably wouldn't know the people around you. You'd have to be in multiple services. The logistics would break down. You're sitting there thinking, how in the world do we manage all of this? Do we even want this? And I think the first church experienced that as well. And you see in, from verses 23 to 31 that they were experiencing all of these issues. And so they gathered together because they realized this has just gotten real and they begin to pray. And I love this. You can read it for yourself in that chapter. It says that the ground underneath their their feet began to shake and the Holy Spirit fell upon them and they spoke the word of God with boldness. I think that's a pretty good description of a church. That the ground would literally and figuratively shake underneath our feet and we realize that what we're a part of right now is, is something that we can't manufacture and the Holy Spirit would fall upon us and that not only Pastor Derek, but all of us would begin to speak the word of God boldly in our communities. Now, following that is this little description right here in verse 32. Follow along with me. It says, all the believers were united, how? In heart and in mind. That's a remarkable little statement. Basically what it says is that the, the early church, they were, they were united in what they knew and in what they felt. Now, in, if those of you that are married, if you get one out of two of those, that's a good day. 
Those of you that have got roommates, those of you that have got good friends, you know that if I can be united with you in what I know and in what I feel, that's a good thing. Most of the time, I'm not going to get both of those. The early church was united in what they knew and in what they felt. Now, they still had issues because they're people. They still had problems, still had things that they were trying to work out, but they were united. And it goes on at the end of that verse, and it says, and they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything that they had. So this passage here gives us a description of the kind of, and this is the word that I want to use, the, the kind of environment that the early church had. The environment that they had. Now, when I say environment, I'm not talking about the facilities. I'm not talking about the seats that they sat in. I'm talking about the disposition of the people, right? The, the body language, the facial expressions, the conversation. Have you ever walked into a, a church, a restaurant, a business, a school, and immediately you pick up the vibe in the room? And immediately you know this, this is a friendly place or an unfriendly place. This is a welcoming place or an unwelcoming place. These people are joyful or these people are a real bummer to be around. That's the environment. And the early church had a gracious environment. They were generous, warm, and hospitable. Now check this out. Verse 33. The apostles, which were basically just the leaders of the early church, they testified powerfully. In other words, when they preached there was power in the room. You ever sat through a sermon and felt like uh, you were the only one in the room? That's what I'm talking about. They testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Now get this, and God's great blessing was upon them all. Here's what I want you to see. I have studied that passage for years and years and years and years, and only until recently did I see the order of it. Here's what I want to point out. In the passage, it didn't say that the apostles stood up and just crushed the sermon and the kids ministry was clean and well organized and the kids were having a great time and the worship was just on point and anointed and they even sang that favorite song that I rock out to in the radio when I'm by myself and it was just a great worship set. Therefore, the people were united in heart and mind. No, that's not the order. What's the order? The people were united in heart and mind first, and then it enabled the apostles to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus with power. Notice the order of it. Here's what we say all the time around our church. Be the church you've always wanted to attend. Instead of looking for the right church, instead of having a consumer mindset, instead of saying, hey, I want to find a church that meets my needs, step up and say, what's the kind of church that I've always wanted to be a part of? Now, let, let, me, let me do it. Let me step in and do it. And that's what you see in the early church. So here's what's happened. The unity and the love and the generosity of the believers is what set the stage for the message of Jesus to be communicated with power and clarity and effectiveness. It is a partnership. This church is not just pastored by Derek and Kaylee and the rest of the staff. It is pastored with all of us together. It is two-way. It's not just the message that's being communicated from the stage, but it's the message that's being communicated in the seats and in the hallways and in the parking lot and in your neighborhoods and in your workplaces and schools. See, it's the attitude and the disposition of, of we as a people, the body of Christ, that sets the stage for God's message of grace to be so effective. Can I phrase the question this way? And, and we need to like personalize this. Is, is my disposition Christ-like? Is it, is it joyful? The, the, the look on my face, I don't, I don't know about you guys, uh, uh, I, uh, I've done a lot of uh, um, emotional intelligence testing lately. I've had to take an emotional intelligence test. How many of you have ever had to do that? And those of you are like, you're feeling my pain, right? Like you take an emotional intelligence test and then you're like, I had no idea people saw me that way. Why didn't they say anything to me? And one of the things that people have said to me is they said, Aaron, you're a little intense. Maybe you've noticed, all right? Uh, I'm a little bit of an introvert by nature. I'm more of a thinker, so I process things. So I have a tendency to like look like this a lot. And all I'm doing is thinking about how much I love you, but you think I'm mad at you, right? <laughs> So it's, it's paying attention to the look on our faces. 
And realizing how I come across to people, especially somebody who's maybe walking in for the first time and they don't, they, they, they're new to church or they don't know Jesus, it's paying attention to our body language. Here's the question. Is my disposition as a person magnify the message of God's grace or does it mute it? Does it eliminate it? It doesn't matter how well Derek preaches on the weekends. Is our disposition as the body of Christ in the seats and in the hallways and in the communities actually muting what is being communicated up front? The environment of a church is not just what we say is important, it's what we do. Uh, Several years ago, uh, our family was traveling and uh, we were going to be out in California and so I needed to book a hotel. We have four kids so it's not easy to get a hotel room. And uh, I looked online, I found a, a hotel that looked uh, pretty decent, uh, it was at a reasonable price, looked nice, so I went ahead and booked it. And uh, when we pulled onto the property, maybe some of you have had this experience, immediately I was like, man, their marketing person is like a genius because like this doesn't look anything like the website. And the building was dated and it looked dirty, it looked like Norman Bates was kind of running the place. And, and uh, you know, there was like, uh, you know, the, the uh, landscaping was all overgrown and uh, we walked in, we were only going to stay there one night. Walked up to the front desk. The girl that was working the desk was uh, on a personal call. And so she uh, kind of did me, gave one of these and turned into like 10 of these, all right? And she uh, acted really annoyed that I was standing in front of her. So I waited patiently for her to get off the phone. Then she couldn't find our reservation. By the time she found it, she, we got us into the room. It's getting late at night. And uh, we walked into the room and it had one of those air conditioner unit things in the window, which tells you what kind of a hotel we were staying in, all right? And it was loud and there was like this like something foreign dripping out of the bottom of it, like onto the carpet that was kind of had this like little puddle. My, uh, my daughter Campbell, she's 13 now, but at the time she was just a toddler and it was a hot summer night. So we just stripped her down just to her diaper and we were kind of letting her crawl around the room. And after a few minutes, I looked over and I said, honey, what's on her feet and her knees? And they were just black. It's because the carpet was so dirty that, yeah, it's as gross as it sounds, all right? Now here's the thing about that whole experience. The website said, you're welcome here. The experience said, don't ever come back. And so we didn't. Now I'm sure you've had that experience. Hotel, restaurant, whatever. It is a thousand times worse when that experience is with the church because of what's at stake. Here's the thing. There's a spiritual battle going on in the lives of people. And some of you felt it. Some of you invited a friend today and you thought they were going to come and they didn't come. And some of you invited a spouse. Some of you invited a coworker. And they can make up every excuse in the book not to get here. So you know how precious of of a... opportunity we have when they do come. Now think about that for a minute. Why would somebody ever show up to a church service? Because it's easy to blow off invitations, and maybe you've done that as well. It's easy to find other things to do. The weather's nice. It's Chicago. There's a jillion other things you could be doing right now other than sitting in this room listening to a guest speaker when you really hoped it was going to be Pastor Derek preaching today. All right? I get it. All right? I get it. Why would somebody show up? You can listen to podcasts online of anybody that you want to listen to. The reason why somebody would show up, whether they realize it or not, is because deep down inside, they're looking for hope. Whether they want to admit it or not, whether they can articulate it that way or not, they're looking for something that they can't just get listening to a podcast or going to a nightclub or a game. They're looking for hope. So how tragic would it be if somebody finally stops making excuses, blowing off invitations, musters up the courage, which by the way, those of us that have attending church for a while need to be reminded, it takes some courage to visit a church, especially if you're not a believer, especially if you don't know the songs, you don't know where to sit, feel like you're going to stick out like a sore thumb. How tragic would it be if somebody finally came and they pulled into the parking lot and didn't know where to go because the signs weren't out? And they couldn't find a place to park because they were all taken right around the building up front. They didn't know where to go. The building isn't clean and the signage isn't clear. Nobody acknowledges them. Nobody says hello. They ask for directions and somebody just points and walks away. Maybe they overhear people grumbling and complaining about something in the corner that they don't necessarily like. You sit down and somebody walks up, kind of gives you the, you know, stank eye because they're sitting in your, you're sitting in their seat. 
They kind of want you to, to move. You look around and people don't act like they want to be there. They're not necessarily singing out. They come in late. They leave early. Everything being communicated up front is in insider language. And you feel like you have to have a decoder to try to figure out what's being said. And it sounds really, really deep, but you have no idea what to do with it. And you sort of leave feeling worse about yourself than when you went in. And maybe you went to church one time looking for hope, but all you got was a good dose of how could you do that? You should be ashamed of yourself. You'd better watch out. You'd better not cry. You'd better not pout. Because I'm telling you why. <laughs> Jesus Christ is coming to town and he's mad at you. So mad. So you better get your act together. I, I preached my first sermon when I was 19 years old. And I've been at my church that I serve in Indianapolis 10 years next month. I preach three times a weekend. Uh, I tried to count how many times I've done a Sunday service and preached sermons. It's over 3,000 now. It feels like I am always writing a sermon. I've been following after Jesus since I was six years old. Here's my challenge. It's easy for me to lose the wonder of all that. It's easy for me to slip into autopilot. It's easy for me to wake up on Sunday morning and go, here we go again. Been through this a jillion times. And the thing like smelling salts that snaps me out of it faster than anything is I'm reminded that there was a time in my life that I was lost and needed to be found. That there might be somebody even though this is maybe your hundredth time to be here, this is gonna be somebody's first time and we, church, better be on our game. This somebody may be pulling into this parking lot looking for hope, like hanging on by a thread and they're walking in here for the first time and I know that every time I have the privilege and that's what it is, Pastor Derek, you know this, a privilege to stand up in all of our deficiencies and open up the word of the God and actually speak for God like a message on his behalf we better be on our game, that it could make all the difference in somebody's life. There are weekends when I crawl out of church and walk to my car and go, man, I don't know if I can do this anymore. Like, that was really bad. I don't know if anybody's going to show up next week. And four or five years later, I'll get an email from somebody and they'll say, hey, that particular message changed my life. Amen. And I'm reminded that it's not me. Then the times whenever I like preach what I think is just a foul ball, God takes a foul ball and turns it into a grand slam, and I don't even know it. And you know what? I think at times God sees it fit because he wants to say, I'm the one that's in charge. I'm the one that's going to get the glory for this thing. I just want you to bring me what it is that you have to offer. See, I love the heart. This is what I want to flip over to another passage now. So if you'd flip three books earlier to the book of Matthew, I want to show you the heart of a guy that I really think captures this whole thing about disposition and environment that I know you want to have here at Renewal Church of Chicago here on year number three and moving forward. Um, I want you to look at me at chapter nine of, of Matthew, starting in verse nine. Some of you may know this whole narrative, but I want to point something out here from this passage that I think could be a real game changer for us as a church. It says in verse nine, as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Now, some of you know that uh, being a tax collector in the first century was a really despised occupation. They were hated by people because they, they cheated people out of money. And Jesus says to him, follow me and be my disciple, which by the way is the call for every one of us today. Do you know that Jesus said, follow me more than he said, believe in me? And many of us think that, that maybe becoming a Christian purely means that I just sort of vaguely believe that there's a God and try to do good things. That's not the gospel. Jesus says, follow after me and be my disciple. And Matthew got up and followed him. So here's what we've got. Matthew is a brand new follower of Jesus, all right? He's still dripping wet from the baptistry. He's excited. Now here's the question that's in front of us. As a new follower of Jesus, what should you do? Like what's the very first thing you would think that Matthew would do? Now Matthew might start a Bible study. He might start an early morning prayer gathering. He might go on a mission trip and, or help little old ladies across the street, right? He could do any number of really, really good things. Here's what Matthew decides to do. Check this out. Verse 10. 
Later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests. Notice the next two words. I think they might be the most important in the passage. Along with. Along with. Many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. I love Matthew's heart. He could have started a Bible study, he could have started a prayer gathering, could have gone on a mission trip, all really, really great things. He probably did those things as well. But what he wants us to know is that he decides to to have a party. He throws a party. I I love what Derek said earlier. The fact that you guys had a party for your third anniversary, and as Christians, we need to celebrate more. We're often known more for what we're against than what we're for. And Matthew says, hey man, I'm going to throw a party. And Jesus, I don't know how in the world I'm going to get you together with my former colleagues and my drinking buddies, but I'm going to have a party. And would you please show up and rub shoulders along with these people? I love Matthew's heart. Now, here's the question that I have for you. Does that sound very spiritual? Does it sound very spiritual to to have a party? Where there were some people that didn't seem to think so. Look with me at verse 11. It says, but when the Pharisees saw this, and many of you may know this, that the Pharisees were just simply the religious leaders of the day, and actually need to describe them even a little bit more. They were the arrogant religious leaders of the day. They felt like they were above everyone else. When they saw this, notice who they asked. They didn't ask Jesus. They didn't go to Jesus. They asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? Now, this is tragic. I mean, they completely missed it. And due to our brokenness and our sin, the human heart always puts people into categories. So those people are in and those people are out. Those people are acceptable. Those people aren't acceptable. Now, the Pharisees said it out loud, but you and I are capable of communicating the exact same thing with a look on our face, rigid body language, never even say a word, and countering the message of God's incredible grace that he wants to get across to people. And the tragic thing is, I think for many people, it's not that they've rejected God, it's that they've rejected their experience with Christians. And so they walk away. And they say, if that's who God is, and if that's what that's all about, then I don't want any part of it. Several years ago in our church, there was a a young girl, and uh, her family grew up in our church. She was a Christian, great girl. And she graduated high school, went off to college. Her freshman year in college, uh, she ended up getting pregnant. And her boyfriend took off, uh, left her with the responsibility of it and the embarrassment and the shame of it. And uh, her family really rallied around her. Her friends came around her trying to help her kind of through that uh, time. She wasn't trying to shirk her responsibility. She was owning it. She was trying to do everything that she could. But she was, as you might imagine, she was embarrassed. And so she didn't show her face in church for a while. I remember one weekend, uh, her her mom and dad uh, emailed me ahead of time. They said, hey, she's going to come with us this weekend. We, We just wanted you to know. And she's, she's embarrassed. She'll probably kind of slip in the side door. And uh, if you could get over and say hello to her, that'd be great. I said, absolutely. And she, uh, she showed up. She kind of slipped in the side door. The service had already started. The room was dark, so nobody could see her. She sits down. Her head's down the whole time I'm preaching. And uh, after the service, she ducked out with her family. I will never forget. Somebody walked up to me in the lobby, and uh, they said, hey, did you, see, did you see? They pointed her out. They said, did you see her here? I go, oh, yeah, absolutely, I did. They said, you know, pastor, somebody should tell her. I was like, tell her what? Well, somebody, somebody should tell her that she can't have one foot in the world and one foot in the church. My blood pressure started, I mean, you thought I'm intense. Like, I was like intense, right? I was like, and I'll go, literally, like, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, excuse me? Like, what did you say? And they repeated it again. I said, oh, okay, okay, wait, wait. So, so you want me 
So you're gonna tell her that she can't have one foot in the world? <laughs> okay, as your pastor, I hereby excommunicate you. All right, no, no, I didn't say that. All right, I wanted to say that. I should have said that, all right? The, the filter caught it. They completely missed it. Listen, if that young girl can't find hope here, then where else is she going to find it? And if she can't find hope and redemption and a second chance here, listen to me, neither can I and neither can you. There are not degrees of sin, there's just sin. You don't like major in something else and minor in sin. Like it's just like all, all, like all, major, all sin is major, all right? It doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's all categorized. It's all grouped together. Now, there may be different consequences for sure. There may be different realities that you've got to work through and deal with. Absolutely. But there's not degrees of, of sin. There's just sin. There's not categories of people. There is just people. People that Jesus loves, by the way. And he is the only one that has the power to free us from that sin. Therefore, we've got to do everything we possibly can to remove the barriers that are keeping people from Jesus. Matthew gets it. Do you? Do I? I got to tell you, it's easy for me to agree with that and go, yeah, man, absolutely, I see it. It's a whole other thing to actually be reminded of it and to live in it day in and day out. See, here, here's the challenge. The longer that we attend church, the more at risk you and I are becoming of being preservers of personal preferences and religious customs over getting people to Jesus with passion and purpose. And I've, those of you who've grown up in church, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I've seen this over and over and over again, and I'm not pointing fingers other than to point it right back at me. Because I've seen traces of it in my own heart. You know, as the lead pastor of our church, um, I don't make all the decisions, right? There's a whole bunch of things that our church does that I don't necessarily like. And sometimes that's surprising for people. And I don't walk around just like, hey, I like that. Let's do that. I, there's a lot of things I'm like, why in the world are we doing that? I don't like that. And they're like, well, we're doing it because of this. Oh, okay. Well, I need to check myself then. Because it's not about me. And it's not about you. And so we end up, when we elevate our personal preferences, our likes and dislikes, then we end up muting the message of God's incredible grace. We, I don't think many of us mean to do it, by the way. I think that we just get busy and we lose the wonder. And we, we maybe remember the way that Renewal Church of Chicago used to be three years ago and it's sort of changed a little bit and we're kind of like grieving that our church that we came to in the kitchen now is kind of a little bit different and we don't necessarily like that. See, here's the problem is that we come to a church and maybe there was a time when the church looked and felt a certain way and that's when we met Jesus and then we assume that that's the way that it should always be. So instead of being humbled by what God is doing now and who God is reaching now, we foster resentment in our hearts over how things have changed. We forget how grace radically rescued us from the situation that we were in five, 10, 15 years ago, and we begin to feel entitled to grace. Maybe we don't like the new songs because they don't sound as reverent as the songs that we like. Or maybe, maybe you're thinking way back, you, you miss some of the old hymns. And I grew up with some of the old hymns. And we're kind of like, man, there's something about the, the old songs and the old hymns that just sound so reverent and so spiritual. And they are. But can we just kind of get one thing clear here? Like Jesus and the disciples did not write the lyrics to the hymns. Like you, you do know that, right? Like it came way, way later. Like, in fact, like the hymns are a product of what we're talking about. 
Because the early church fathers like Martin Luther, maybe you heard of that, not Martin Luther King, Martin Luther came before that. Martin Luther was an early church father. He was a Roman Catholic and he said, hey, we're, there's actually a barrier here keeping people from the message of God's grace. And so he tried to remove that. And one of the things that Martin Luther did was he was hanging out in a pub. He heard a, a song that sounded really, really catchy. And he said, you know what? My unchurched friends, I think, would sing to that song. So he changed the lyrics to Christian lyrics. Maybe you've heard of the song. It's called Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound. It's a pub tune. That's how sacred that is. It's a song that came out of mission where he said, we got to get people to Jesus. Maybe some of you aren't all that thrilled about the fact that you're going back to two services next weekend. And you've got good reasons why you feel that way. Can I just tell you, it's not about you and me and personal preferences. It's about making room for more people to experience that incredible grace that God wants to offer to others. Please hear me. There is nothing wrong with your personal opinions and personal preferences. Just don't confuse them with biblical issues. And don't let it stand in the way of God's heart for people. This uh, quote's by Sheldon Von Eichen. He's He's an author. So convicting. He says, the best argument for Christianity is Christians. I've often heard it this way. There's a fifth gospel. It's called you. (laughs) Your life, what you say, how you live. The best argument for Christianity is Christians. There, what's the word? Say it out loud with me. Oh, that wasn't very joyful. All right, let's say it again with some joy. 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 Yeah. There's certainty. Wow, how many of us are certain? Their completeness. But the strongest argument against Christianity is also Christians. When they are somber and joyless, when they are self-righteous and smug in complacent consecration. I have no idea what that means, but it sounds good, all right? When they are narrow and repressive, then Christianity dies a thousand deaths. I couldn't agree more. I think Jesus does too. Because check out Jesus' response in verse 12. Now, Notice that the Pharisees asked the disciples this question, not Jesus, but Jesus is the one who answers, which tells me that he was listening in and this mattered to him. How I visualize it is Jesus is maybe over in the, you know, kitchen with his red cup, you know, sipping on sweet tea or something, and he overhears the question and he perks up and he's like, I'd like to answer that. (laughs) And he comes right over and listen to what Jesus says. When Jesus heard this, he said... Healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. Then he added, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. Now maybe you've heard the first part of that before, but it's that second part that I want to draw your attention to, because what in the world does that mean? Jesus pointed them to the meaning of a scripture, and he said, I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. What's that about? Here's my guess, is that the Pharisees showed up to this party with their scrolls. They didn't have Bibles, apps like we have today, or even paper Bibles. They had scrolls. Very inconvenient for taking them around. I think that they probably showed up to their party like, hey, we're not going to have anything to drink. We brought our scrolls. And they're standing there sort of off in the corner with their Bibles. And I think Jesus is like, oh, see, you brought your Bible. I want you to look up a a passage. I want you to tell me what this passage means. And then he quotes out of Hosea chapter 6. When he says, I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices, he's quoting Hosea 6. What's going on there? In that book, God is confronting his people for a lack of love. And he basically says to his people, what am I going to do with you? Your love is like the morning dew that evaporates by 10 o'clock. In other words, you started off loving people well, but it didn't last long. He's saying, I don't want you to just go through the religious motions. What does that mean? Attend church, sing some songs, pray, read your Bible, go on a hunger walk. God is essentially saying, I don't care if you don't love people. I want you to show mercy, not just continue to offer sacrifices. And then he finishes with this. Let's read it out loud together. For I have come to call 
Not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners, which by the way is you and me. And when religious traditions and personal preferences get in the way of sick people getting to a doctor, Jesus gets ticked off. He has very little patience. So why is it important that we get this? Well, it's important because of what I've already mentioned. There are people that are desperately looking for hope every single week, and the church, even though our culture doesn't acknowledge this, the church has the answer. The second thing is when we mess this up, it messes people up. And some of you are the recipients of that. Every single week, I'm having to nurse people back to health that have had a bad church experience. And the message of the church is hope in a world shrouded in darkness and constantly knocking you and me down. The church should stand. Renewal Church of Chicago should stand as a beacon of light that gets others back on their feet. And the job of the church is to say and to demonstrate that Jesus is available to everyone. See, here's the really, really good news, especially if you're visiting and you're checking all this out for yourself. The good news is that God loves you just as you are. But there's even better news, that God refuses to leave you where he found you. It's acceptance, not affirmation. And there's a difference between the two. You are accepted no matter what. It doesn't matter how you're living. It doesn't matter what you currently believe. It doesn't matter what your opinions and perspectives and politics are. You're accepted. But nobody's affirmed. Why? Because we're sinners. And others have to speak into my life all the time and say, Aaron, you need to change that. Or Aaron, I think there's something that you're not seeing and God wants to address that in your life. What's that called? It's called growth. And oftentimes you can't see where you need to grow. That's why you need the spirit of God and you need the church and you need others speaking into your life. And some of you have had somebody speak into your life recently and you rejected it because it hurt your pride. You didn't like it because it hit too close to home. But see, that's what the church is for. See, God's got to get into the soil of your heart and dig around a little bit. The the very first house that that my wife, Lindsay, and I uh, lived in right after our marriage, right after we got married, uh, was a little rental house. It was like 800 square feet, and it uh, was just a wreck. It was like a fixer-upper. The people that had rented it before us had really neglected it, so we had to rip out the carpet, power wash the walls. It was a mess on the inside, also a mess on the outside. The, uh, the, the yard just wasn't growing grass, and uh, there, it was just dirt. And no matter how much turf builder I put on it, no matter how much I watered it, like it just was just dirt. And so finally, I rented a, a tiller, and uh, I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> And I started tilling up the yard. And I quickly discovered why it wasn't growing grass. There was all kinds of trash, um, old Miller Lite beer cans. There was chicken wire. Uh, there was Leonard Skinner t-shirts. I don't know if you recognize that band or not. It was as if Ricky Bobby lived there before us, right? It was like I was digging up all this stuff from the soil. And all of a sudden I went, that's why it's not growing grass. I didn't know it because it was all underneath the surface, but I could hit it with turf builder and water all I wanted. It wasn't going to grow until we got up underneath the surface. Can I tell you, that's what the teaching of the Word of God is and what the message of the church is and what the Holy Spirit is, is you come in here and maybe the Bible calls it fruit, right? Galatians. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, 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 I can't even speak, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, inappropriate speech apparently, right? And we we need to develop fruit in our life. And some of you are like, where's the fruit, God? Why aren't these things happening in my life? I'm trying, I'm trying. And the Spirit of God wants to dig into the soil of your heart and reveal some things. That's where conviction comes from. The question is, will you receive it or not? And you'll never be able to receive it if you don't walk into an environment that sets you at ease and you says, okay, I don't have all my stuff here together. Man, neither do I. Most powerful two words you could say in church is me too. Somebody goes, man, I'm really struggling with my faith. Man, me too. And I, I, there are days I just wonder if God really is listening. Man, me too. Man, my, my thought life right now is just really jacked up. Man, me too. Now let's not excuse it. Let's go after it. By the power of God in our lives. See, the, the job of the church 
is to make this message as clear as we possibly can. The way that we say it at our church in Indianapolis is we want to remove barriers that are keeping people from Jesus. Because we believe, Jesus even said it this way one time, he said, if you lift me up, I'll draw all men and women unto myself. So if Pastor Derek continues just to lift up the name of Jesus, like you can't help this church from growing. Not because Derek's great, and he is great, but because of Jesus' promise. Jesus said, you faithfully lift up my name, which isn't just in the teaching, but it's in our disposition as people. He'll draw people to that. Jesus is the best at changing people's lives, so let's let him do what only he can do. The job of the church is to remove barriers so that people can get to him, which is why I love John the Baptist so much. Remember that guy, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, right? Wild eyes, you know, bugs in his teeth honey in his beard, right? That, that guy. And, and this guy loved his message because he knew why, he knew what his responsibility was. In Mark chapter 1 verse 3, John the Baptist said, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. Not, not curvy, not obstacles, not, not, hey, guess which path? John knew what his job was. I want to read one more quote to you from this author by the name of Madeline L. Engel. She said, we draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe, by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. You get that picture? See, the the picture of the church should be that there should be people that are coming here going, you know what, I don't know if I believe what y'all believe, and I don't know that I value what you value, but I believe you believe it. I believe it's authentic. And I believe there is a joy about you and a peace about you and a kindness about you that I want to check that out for myself. Can I just say that there is a spiritual battle going on in the city of Chicago and beyond and Renewal Church of Chicago stands as a beacon of light. And every time somebody sets foot in this facility, there's an opportunity. And I want you to know that this This whole issue of disposition and environment and owning the message isn't just on your pastor and his wife. It's on all of us. This is a all hands on deck kind of a thing. If you're thinking, well, you know, this is the job for the staff and then we come and sit and soak it in and we're the recipients of this, you're wrong. You got to lend a hand. Here's the reason why. Because um, there is a ministry that you have that your pastor will never have. Because people expect Derek to be on. They expect Derek to have all the answers. They expect Derek to always be available. They expect Derek to be nice. Why? Because he's the guy with the microphone on in the lobby. He's the pastor. But when you represent Jesus well and when you're on mission, that says a lot. And they're like, whoa, what, why are you? We understand why he's doing it. Why are you doing it? And then it gives you the opportunity. You've got an opportunity right in front of you to tell them about the Jesus that you know. A few years ago, there was a a single mom that visited our church for the first time, and she came to one of our new membership classes, and uh, she kind of stood up and gave her story, and she said, you know, she said, when I first came to to Trader's Point, she said, uh, I was so intimidated, and uh, our our worship center is, is, is big, and so it can be intimidating for a lot of people when they walk in, and she said, man, she said, I didn't know where to go, I didn't know anybody. Uh, I found my way to the kids' ministry, checked my daughter in. She said, I enjoyed the music, and the message really spoke to me. And she said, my, my daughter loved the kids' ministry when I went to pick her up. But as we were walking out the front door, I said to myself, we probably won't come back, which startled me, because everything she had said up to that point was great. And I said, well, help me understand why. And she said, well, you need to understand. She said, as a single mom, I didn't believe in God yet. She said, it was so intimidating. It, it, I, it, I had to muster all the courage that I could get up just to attend your church. And she said, I didn't know if I could do it again, honestly. And I said, well, why'd you come back? And she said, right when my hands hit the front door, I heard my name. There's something really powerful when you hear your name in an environment you're not expecting anybody to know it. Isn't that true? Which is why, by the way, if you don't know somebody's name here, don't just call them buddy. Don't, don't just call them buckaroo, all right? Ask them their name. They'll forgive you. And then just remember it because there's something intimate about that. She said, I heard my name. She said, she turned around. There's this lady behind her smiling. And she goes, there's a lady I work with. She had no idea she attended church here. And she, she greeted me and she said, is this your first time? And she said, yes. And she said, well, did somebody show you around? She goes, no, I just checked my daughter in and went into the worship center. I've only been to these three spaces. And she said, well, let me show you around the building so that way you're more familiar with it. 
And then she said, do you have any lunch plans? Because my husband and I, we've made more than we could eat. Why don't you join us in our home for lunch? And through tears in her eyes, she looked at me and she said, Aaron, your sermon was good that day, but she's why I came back. Can I just say, Derek can preach the pain off these walls, but if you're not warm and kind and joyful, it may not matter. Be the reason why somebody comes back. Go, go look for that person, engage them in conversation. And this is something as, as a church that I have to constantly put out in front of our people. You know, this, uh, this summer, a friend of mine, she and her husband serve in a church in Cincinnati, and she was coming through Indianapolis, and she told me she was going to visit our church. And so I said, uh, we actually have more than one campus. And so I said, why don't you visit two of our campuses? Uh, go to the early service of one, go to a later service of another, and then I'd love just to, to, for you to tell me your thoughts, tell me your impressions. She's like, yeah, sure, absolutely. So she attended our church, two different campuses, two different services. She sent me four pages of feedback. I was beginning to regret that I asked her. And she actually had a lot of really great things to say, but she also had some really sobering things to say. Because here's the thing, when you attend a church for a while, you begin to become blind to your own weaknesses. And so every church thinks they're friendly, but that doesn't mean we are. So here's just a couple of things she said about our church. She said, I received a couple smiles on the way in, no warm greetings, no handshakes or welcomes. It was easy enough for me to guess where the worship service was, but wasn't really offered any help navigating the building. I tried to identify myself as new, asked for directions to the restroom. I received a point and a gesture, and that was it. Here's another one. Upon leaving, I lingered a bit in the lobby, walked by the welcome desk to grab materials. I wanted to see if anyone would connect with me if I didn't initiate, and no one did. The booth was staffed, but lacked presence. There's a lot in that sentence. No one spoke to me outside of directions to the restroom. And the handshake during meet and greet, I had no real human connection. Aaron, overall, this was a good church experience with a great service, but I would have loved to have more warmth and human connection, and it's what would have increased my chances of returning. Hey, that's us. That's our church. And I stood in front of our church three weeks ago and said, this is on me because I haven't led us in the direction that we need to go to be reminded of the fact that there is no such thing as a peanut gallery in the church. This is an all hands on deck. I wanna close with this. A few years ago, I was uh, preaching and, and uh, I had started, uh, I was maybe like two or three minutes into my sermon and there's this uh, guy that, that walked in and he looked just like Mr. Clean. You know what I'm talking about? You know, the, 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 the cleaning bottle, you know, the bald head, the big loop earrings, and he's, he's Samoan. He's from Hawaii, covered in tats, sleeved up both arms, very intimidating looking guy. I couldn't help but notice him because he uh, walked in as I'm starting my sermon, sat in the back, and then sat down and just kind of crossed his arms and just scowled at me the whole time. And I couldn't help but just look at him the whole time I'm preaching, and I'm sitting there going, I want to meet that guy. So as soon as I get done preaching, I ducked out the back, and I ran to the door where I know people exit that don't want to talk to the pastor. <laughs> hey, we know. We know. All right? You're not fooling anybody? And so uh, I ran to that door just as he's hitting the door, and I walked up to him, and I said, hey, man, my name's Aaron. And he looked at me, and he's like, so? That's literally what he said. <laughs> And uh, I was like, oh, all right. I was like, well, what's your name? And he goes, why does it matter? And I was like, it doesn't. Have a nice day now. All right. Uh, and I uh, just left. I thought, man, that was, he shot me down real quick. I thought, man, I'm never going to see that guy again. The next weekend, I stand up to preach. Two minutes into my sermon, Mr. Clean walks in. Same spot, sits down, doesn't look any happier. His arms crossed, looking at me, through, scowling at me through the whole sermon. I thought, you know what? I'm just going to give him some space because I don't think he wants to talk to me. And so I'm out in the lobby talking to some people, and he makes a beeline straight for me. Like he's walking like, like muscles are bulging in places. I didn't know you had muscles. And he's just like looking all intense. And he, he walks up to me and uh, he sticks out his hand. He goes, you the preacher? And I was like, what tipped you off, Sherlock? Uh, I didn't say that. I, did. I say all kinds of things to myself that sound great that I never just say out loud. So anyway, I was just like, yeah, I, I was. And or I am. And uh, he's like, oh, he's like, uh, well, uh, I'm not really into this church thing. Uh, but uh, I was wondering if you'd pray for me about something. I was like, yeah, man, absolutely. And he said, uh, he said, I just bought a house and I'm getting ready to close escrow. 
but I just found out that my landlord of my apartment isn't going to let me out of my lease. And if he doesn't let me out of my lease, then I'm going to have a rent and I'm going to have a mortgage payment and it's going to sink me financially. And he goes, would you play the, pray that my blankety blank landlord would let me out of my lease? And I quote, all right, except he didn't blankety blank. He said the real thing. So, so I, was like, I was like, all right, absolutely. And I said, uh, I said can, can I get your name now? And uh, he's like, no. I was like, okay, all right, I'll just pray in this general area for general said individual right here, all right? So, so, so we start praying, and, and uh, I prayed that God would allow his landlord to let him out of his lease, and I left out the blankety-blank. And, that, and then, and then uh, I get down to the end of it, and I snuck this one in. I said, and God, I, I, don't, I don't know uh, my new friend here, um, but I would pray that by the end of the year, he would come to know you for who you really are. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. And I took a big giant step back. Like I didn't know if he'd come out swinging, right? And, and so uh, I looked up at him and he had, he, had a, he had a tear in his eye. And I knew I hit a nerve. And I was like, hey man, you okay? And he goes, yeah, man. He's like, these allergies are killing me. And, and I was just like, yeah, me too, me too. And, and so he gets in his truck, he drives away. The next weekend, comes in, same drill, two minutes late, sits in the same seat. Afterwards, he's making a beeline to me again and he does not look happy. And I'm thinking, oh man, what happened? And so he walks right up to me and right when he gets like two feet from me, he sticks out his hand and he goes, hey man, my landlord let me out of my lease, man. And I was like, that's awesome. And I kid you not, this is what he said next. He goes, God listens to you, man. I brought a list this week. And he snaps it out of his back pocket. He's like, I got some requests, right? And I was like, hey, man. I was like, it doesn't work that way, bro. And, and so it, it was enough for him to tell me his name. And we began a friendship. And uh, uh, I, I asked him to come early the next week and help us set some stuff up because he was big and he could carry things. And so I just said, hey man, he goes, well, I don't believe in any of this stuff. I said, that's fine. You can pick up a chair, can't you? You don't have to believe to pick up a chair. He's like, oh, okay. Yeah, that's true. And so, so he would like come and, and, and we would go to dinner. And I remember like inviting him over to our house and uh, he walked into our living room and my wife had never met him. And he starts telling his story about how he grew up in Hawaii and he joined the Air Force just to get out of it, an abusive home and how uh, he had almost been court-martialed and all this, like all these ups and downs. He had a daughter living in Hawaii that he didn't get to see very often. And he was divorced and he was living with a lady now. And he's on the living room floor, like playing with my kids. And my wife like peers around. She's like, who did you bring into our house? And uh, I was like looking at Eli, like going, hey man, like circle of trust, bro. Like don't break my trust. And he was in our house all the time. He was at church for a, a solid six months. I'll never forget the day when Eli walked into my office and he, he sat down across from my desk and his allergies had come back. Apparently his tears were in his eyes. All he said to me, he looked up at me, his lips were trembling. He said, Aaron, what do I have to do? So what do you mean? He goes, man, I see the joy of these people. I see what I've been listening to what you've been talking about. What do I have to do to get in good with God? What, what do I have to do to have him accept me? Just, just I'll, do it, I'll do anything. Just give me the list. I was like, Eli, there's no list, bro. You are saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus on a cross. And God loves you the way that you are, but he refuses to leave you where he found you, brother. And that big Samoan man covered in tats got down on his knees in my office and gave his life to Jesus. And I got to baptize him like a week later. You know where he is today? He's sitting right back. No, he's not. He's not. I, <laughs> that'd be so cool, wouldn't it? Like if he was here, he could walk up. Or no. no, he's... He's actually uh, runs a ministry in Sacramento right now for, for boys that are living on the streets. You have no idea who might walk in those doors next week. You have no idea who God has already preordained. He's going to change somebody's life. And Derek could get up here and preach the lights out, and he will. But what they experience with you might be the pivotal moment where somebody might say, hey, Derek, hey, thanks so much. Like, your sermon was great, but she's why I came back. He's why I came back. Why? 
because the church is not something you come and observe and take in. The church is something that you're a part of. And if your spiritual life is plateaued, the automatic impulse is for us to go, well, I just need some more depth. You are as deep as the last person that you led to Jesus. See, we want to throw a party for people who don't know God. We're not just having a Bible study for Pharisees. And Jesus wants to reach and touch others through you. So happy birthday, Renewal. I can't wait to see what God's going to do in this place. And it starts with you. And it starts with me. Let's pray.